Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In our first segment today, we're talking to Oklahoma Watch reporter Jennifer Palmer, who just finished a story about Oklahoma teachers and how COVID is affecting them this fall. Coronavirus cases in schools have soared this year, and teachers, even vaccinated teachers, are getting sick, as you reported. What's different about this back-to-school season? Well, there's quite a few things that are different, uh, starting with Delta. Uh, You know, we've seen a a surge in cases driven by Delta this summer. Um, The masks are very different. Uh, You know, state law um, led a lot of districts to not require masks um, due to the state law, which is now on hold. Um, And one thing I found in reporting is that quarantines are very, very different this year, mostly recommended instead of mandatory. And then, you know, I found larger class sizes, a lot more students are choosing to be in person, which is just leading to more bodies in, in schools. And what can you tell us about the teachers, the educators that you talked to for this story? So I started reporting this story after reading a blog post written by a high school teacher in Putnam City. Uh, His name's Aaron Baker, and and he wrote a blog post that kind of went viral, got some attention. It was called Oklahoma Senate Bill 658 Gave Me COVID-19. And so I I started off talking with him. Uh, I talked to a couple of other educators. Uh, There's an elementary math teacher named Jamie Cole in Duncan. Um, She's one of those high-risk folks who has some pre-existing conditions, making COVID, you know, extra risky. And then uh, Nikki Francis uh, is another uh, uh, educator that I talked to. She's a librarian in Piedmont. And in talking with all of them, I've felt a lot of, um, you know, anger and frustration, of course, at, at getting COVID so early in the year, um, but also a lot of fear. Um, you know, there's there's been quite a few deaths. I think we're approaching 10,000, so a very real uh, fear that they're all feeling. Do, do we know how many teachers have uh, caught COVID, had a breakthrough case? No, that was one thing I tried really hard to find. Um, I could not even, uh, not only could I not Uh, find any data on breakthrough cases in teachers, but I could not even find very good data on the number of vaccinated teachers. There's been a few polls nationally, and there's one state poll going on that should give us a little idea um, of how many teachers are vaccinated. And then, um, you know, the state data put out by the health department also does not um, separate out teachers. So we don't know how many positive cases are coming from schools. Gotcha. Um, You know, you reported some statistics from the Piedmont School District that were uh, really kind of uh, eyebrow raising. Um, The districts already had more cases this school year than in all of 2021, right? Um, What do you know about that? That's right. And Piedmont is not alone there. I heard from several other districts who have already exceeded their entire last school year's total in just a few short, short weeks. Wow, that's uh, that's really kind of scary. Yeah. Uh, are are the spikes among school children and their teachers due to the severity of the Delta variant, or 
Can a lot of this be attributed to the anti-mask law and reduced precautions compared to what we were seeing last year? So I don't think we know the answer to that yet. I think it's still pretty early um, to really, you know, determine that. Um, I, I think the um, the Delta variant is more contagious. It's more transmissible. We know that much. Um, you know, many of the teachers I talk to really emphasize that they want um, mask mandates because, you know, from the studies that have been done on masks, we know that they work best when everyone wears one, which is why they all, you know, wish that they were mandated so that everyone would be wearing one to keep them safer. Got it. Well, thanks, Jennifer. And listeners can read Jennifer's story about how COVID is affecting teachers on OklahomaWatch.org. Lionel Ramos is on our race and equity team, and he's been looking into unemployment overpayments. Residents of several states received more than they should have, and Oklahoma is among those states sending letters to residents telling them they need to send the money back. Lionel, how did this happen? Yeah, so according to the U.S. Government Accountability Office, as of June 21st of this year, the Department of Labor reported that states and territories had identified about $12.9 billion in overpayments made in unemployment insurance programs between April 2020 and March 2021, the first four quarters of the pandemic. The reason it's coming up now is because many unemployment agencies have shifted their focus from successfully implementing unemployment programs and clearing uh, claims backlogs to identifying errors and fraud, which lead to the discovery of overpayments. So uh, really, are we talking about fraudulent claims the state is trying to recover or were a lot of these overpayments just accidental? Partially. From what I've learned, there are three kinds of errors with unemployment claims that may cause overpayment administrative errors, claimant errors, and fraudulent errors. But it's important to know that each unemployment claim is unique, so there is no example that speaks for all or even most Oklahomans facing overpayments. There are, however, a few situations that are generally reoccurring in some way, shape, or form. So you, you talk to a lot of people in the course of uh, reporting the story. Can you give us maybe some examples of how individual Oklahomans are being affected by this? Well, I have yet to speak to Oklahomans who are experiencing this directly. So I don't have any specifics yet, but I have been speaking to an attorney who has been helping people file appeals for these overpayments. Um, the situations vary, but for the sake of trying to understand what's going on in a general sense, an administrative error might look something like the commission paying out unemployment benefits to a claimant before their initial adjudication is complete. So before it is determined that the claimant is qualified to receive such payments. Claimant errors are just what they sound like. A claimant unknowingly falsifies information or worded something in their application in a way that disqualifies them from receiving benefits, but somehow they still got paid. Fraudulent claims are straightforward on the face. Someone knowingly falsified information on their claim and was later discovered by the commission. This begins to get tricky when people don't intentionally commit fraud, are notified months later with fraudulent overpayment letters. It can be very stressful and scary, not to mention costly, to owe money to the state for something that might have been accidental. I imagine so, especially these were unemployment payments, people who were out of work. Um, good chance they don't just have that money sitting around in a bank account to send back to the state uh, if it was an accident, right? How, how much money is involved here? Do, do we have a total for this yet? We don't know how much in overpayments Oklahoma is trying to collect in total yet. I am connected with the Oklahoma Employment Security Commission and should be getting that number soon within the day or two. 
but based on the national total of $12.9 billion, <laughs> and what I've seen from other states, the number is likely in the hundreds of millions. Wow. Um, what else are you still trying to learn uh, about this problem? We don't know it all yet, right? Right. So I think the big thing is that is that total dollar amount because it can show us the magnitude of the situation in Oklahoma specifically. In addition to that, though, I'd like to know how that total dollar amount breaks up into the various kinds of errors the commission categorizes overpayments under. That will give us an idea of what the biggest problem is, whether it's fraud, claimant errors, or administrative errors. Is there anything that you've come across so far that uh, gives us a way to predict how that's going to shake out if, if a higher percentage is, say, fraud versus inadvertent errors? Well, what I do know is that it doesn't really matter what the reason for the overpayment is. The way that Oklahoma law is written says that claimants are liable for paying it back, whether it's through future disbursements of unemployment benefits. Or just write them a check and yeah, give the money back. Yeah, right? just pay them out of pocket. And some of the other states, though, are not trying to get the money back, right, that that had similar problems. They're just forgiving it and, and moving on, but Oklahoma's in the group that's trying to collect. Exactly. So there are a few states uh, that are... Oklahoma Watch editor Mike Sherman worked on a story about domestic violence, a topic that grabbed a lot of national attention recently. Mike, domestic violence is at an all-time high in Oklahoma. How bad is it? It's pretty bad. You know, Whitney Bryan has been reporting on this topic for Oklahoma Watch for quite some time, and I was starting to think of the numbers. You know, the, I think the breakdown was 7 in 1,000 Oklahomans were victims of some form of domestic violence, reported some form of domestic violence during 2020. And if you think about that, like a high school football stadium, Edmund Santa Fe, for instance, holds about uh, 5,000 people. It's about 35 people in that stadium. In 2020, were, were victims of domestic violence, which is about as many people on a moderately sized 5A or 4A high school football team. So a whole high school football team that's been victimized by domestic violence. It's a lot. And that is a lot. You know, you, you also recently edited a story that reported an increase in suicide rates uh, due to the pandemic. Is COVID playing a hand in the increase in domestic violence? Well, you know, this is where a lot of the political leaders and, and people who are really worried about sheltering in place, about shutting down the economy, about the, the mental health effects, you know, they turned out to be uh, right and uh, prescient. Um, they go hand in hand. Everybody's sort of cooped up. You Instead of being able to go to school, and uh, and sort of dilute the number of people you're around. You, in some cases, unfortunately for these folks, uh, those seven in 1,000, they were uh, spent too much time with their abusers. So I, I really think those two things, which Whitney Bryan has reported on in both cases, uh, did have a huge effect on the pandemic. That's what the experts told us then, and that's what they're saying now. You know, Oklahoma has the third highest rate of female murder victims in the country. Do we know why that is? We don't really, but you know, there's there's a, a high profile case of a missing uh, woman that's made all the national news. And uh, our state Senator Mickey Dolan's tweeted about this today and tweeted about how the police in that case missed some big important clues that could have prevented what happened. She's missing. The, her boyfriend is a suspect. 
And there was a case where he was uh, found uh, caught slapping her on, on, on a body cam of a police officer. They pulled them over, stopped them, let them go. I think a question for us in our reporting is how are our police forces situated to detect this kind of stuff? And what would a police force look like if there were more women walking the beat, if there were more women in high-ranking positions? And do our police, for, our police forces train for this kind of policing? Here in Oklahoma, Tulsa County has the highest domestic violence rate in the state. It's nearly double the rate in Oklahoma County. Is there any explanation for that difference? When you talk to uh, an expert, somebody who runs a nonprofit that deals with this issue every day um, for providing services to trying to prevent. And uh, she was uh, at a loss, but she did offer a couple theories. One of them was policing, came back to policing, um, thought that maybe Tulsa police force was not staffed as, uh, as well as possible when it come when it comes to this kind of uh, policing also poverty pays a plays a huge huge part in this stuff and the nonprofit is located right in the heart of some of the, of a center of poverty in Tulsa we know the joblessness we know that isolation all those things played a role in it and that was those are a couple of the answers that she provided the legislature in the last couple of years has tightened up some of the statutes redefining uh, domestic uh, violence, especially choking as a violent crime last year. Is that helping at all? I think it may be too early to tell in the numbers. But one of the things is if you're looking for a silver lining in this cloud, uh, that change brought upon by the attempts to reform criminal justice, that's something good to look at. It'll be interesting to look at the numbers this time next year. Thanks, Mike. Listeners can read Whitney's full story at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch. You can find those stories on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.